Welcome to the February 2019 Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox. Now, this April, ACRM is going to be hosting its first ACRM Training Institute in Chicago. The ATI offers instructional courses with continuing education credits and your choice of 11 different disciplines. You can check it out at acrm.org under Spring Meeting 2019. Let's get right into this month's featured study with Dr. Samantha Backhouse. Dr. Backhouse is a clinical neuropsychologist at the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana's Comprehensive Outpatient Brain Injury Neuro Rehab Center. Uh, Dr. Backhouse and her colleagues have published in the archives of PM&R an investigation of a new couple's intervention for individuals with brain injury. It's a randomized controlled trial. Dr. Backhouse, thanks for joining us today. Sure. Thank you for having me. Well, I know that uh, you have a heavy focus uh, in this area of, uh, of, of couples therapy and have done some other work with regards to various forms of group therapy and so forth uh, after brain injury. Bring us up to speed a little bit about, about your areas of uh, research interest versus kind of what you do focus on clinically. Sure. Um, well, as far as research goes, I have a specific interest more in looking at um, sort of the uh, clinical translational world where mm-hmm. we study different um, interventions and try to determine if they have any positive um, effects or benefits for the individuals that participate in these types of interventions so that we can eventually start using them with these um, individuals with brain injury and uh, and their um, significant others or family members. And and we are really focused, uh, my particular focus is more sort of long-term uh, quality of life issues. So I focus a lot on um, psychosocial functioning and mood relationships, mm-hmm. um, sort of the the things that that we think about, um, other things, right? Besides our, in addition to our jobs and being able to drive, that that also you know bring about meaning in our life of who we are, what our identity is, and what um, brings us joy. And I see here, looking at your background, that uh, ten years ago now you developed this brain injury uh, coping skills uh, group, um, and perhaps that's a precursor to the type of work that you're doing now. Would you tell me about that? Sure. Yes, um, you're correct. Uh, it is actually a precursor to the couple study. So, the brain injury coping skills group was developed, um, uh, really just kind of. First and foremost, when I got here to this setting and started practicing, um, it you know has been clear that these individuals are were struggling, and um, you know you get kind of uh, discharged from your therapies and however many sessions you get, and uh, and I think a lot of people reported that they felt like they were just sort of left in this black hole and kind of abyss, so to speak, and we I wanted to really address that need. Uh, that was there. Um, and so what happened is that started doing some research on, well, what do people say that their needs are after they're discharged and, and what, how important is family to that process, right? And, and what does the family report that their needs are? Because we, we do know that how the family deals and copes with 
these types of traumatic situations can absolutely influence the rehabilitation outcome of the person that has the injury. So I uh, started doing a lot of research and, and actually um, found a lot of great articles that had already been published by Jeff Kreutzer, who really looked a lot into this area and um, came up with some pretty common themes of what families uh, will report their needs are. So started putting together, um, we thought, well, it might be nice, actually, if we did this in a group format, first of all, and um, because I think that people want support and people want to know that there are other people out there that are like them. So, and we also know that um, at that time, there were some groups um, group interventions that were developed for, uh, okay, I'm just going to use the word survivor here or the person that had the injury. And um, then, then there are also group interventions for caregivers alone or family members alone. But uh, to, at that point, there weren't any interventions that were developed where you would you combine the survivor of the injury and a caregiver or family member and then have them as a dyad go through the group so that people can receive support from each other in that way. Um, so we did at that point we developed um, a 12 session group and then it eventually turned into 16 sessions and um, had a lot of support actually. So most unfortunately during um, the sort of the genesis of that project, there was a family member that came to our hospital who wanted to help. And apparently um, their daughter, uh, who is a very, very well-known physician actually in this community, had suffered a traumatic brain injury and she had gone through sort of the general course of therapies, but there was not a lot of family education or support um, that occurred uh, and they wanted to make a difference. So the, the, fa- the, the daughter unfortunately took her life uh, four years after the injury happened. And so that it was, of course, extremely um, heartbreaking and unfortunate, um, and 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 fit, you know, with what we were learning that it doesn't matter how long you know it it's been since the injury occurred. It's not just about the first six months or the first year, but that people are at risk for these types of challenges for year you know years post injury and without. Um, appropriate family involvement and support um, that it really will just tear apart the whole system. Uh, and, and to be clear, uh, this uh, initial brain injury coping skills group is what evolved into the couples caring and relating with empathy after brain injury program? Yes, yeah. Okay. Because that that group was for dyads, which were, you know, it could be a survivor and a mother, a daughter, right? It, it, it could be a brother or a sister, just anyone that was close to them that needs to have some understanding of what happened to their loved one. Mm-hmm. So um, from that group, so basically actually that group, 50%, like the first eight weeks were really focused on a lot of psychoeducation and training about the effects of the injury. But then the last eight weeks were focused on um, stress management and how to cope and deal with um, ongoing chronic issues for years after injury. And um, part of the stress management skills were skills on um, communication and 
and um, listening to one another's needs. And so um, time after time after we had, um, I mean, we, we published a couple of studies on that group, but after we had been running this group clinically for years, um, almost in every group, of course, you know, not only will you have, um, you know, the, your other kind of dyads, like I just described, but you're also going to have married couples or couples in mm-hmm. relationships. And those couples, um, almost 100% of the time would say, man, we really wish, like, we, we just love this, and we just want this to continue. And so now we have the core skills and the core foundation for understanding the injury and maybe some stress and coping skills. But now we want to know how to deal with each other. Like, how do we, how do we deal with our relationship? Because this has changed. This is different for us. It's, you know, we're, we're in a new relationship, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So we, even the marriage has become a new normal. So that's how we develop the idea, uh, actually, from feedback. That that's what people wanted. Yeah. So patient-centered research. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, and patient-centered uh, focus on on outcomes. That's great. And and you start out. Uh, you talk about there's there's certainly a a wide literature on on couples therapy. Some of which has great parallels to brain injury. I found that portion of your paper quite quite fascinating. Tell us about that and how some of the issues that people deal with in in you know so-called quote unquote normal marriages unaffected by brain injury are so similar. Um, I was actually taken aback by that as well. And I I thought that was really neat um, in some ways. So so some of the most common themes in the general literature that people will often report sort of leads to marital distress or or themes surrounding that are issues with uh, communication with each other. So then they will grow apart from each other. Another big issue that people will report is when um, if someone is having just sort of general um, um, coping issues and, and I, not too severe, but even just kind of, you know, if one of the individuals is going through depression or anxiety or maybe that that's um, that they have sort of a, a longstanding depressive disorder and they're very likely to. Um, have a lot of misperceptions in the relationship. And so um, by that, you know, that could simply mean you're, you know, walking around and you're at home and, you know, you, I always give the example, I'm, I look at my husband and if my husband is sighing, um, I, I personalize that. And I think, oh, wow, you know, he's upset with me. I've done something wrong. And, you know, and if you're a person that has, you know, just some general insecurities or if you're a person that has a lot of anxiety or depression to begin with, then you're much more likely to hold on to those misperceptions and never, never talk about that, never communicate about that, but only respond on that. So now you withdraw from the relationship, right? So those are very general patterns that that can occur in most um, or in sort of the general population. And then finally, the other theme that popped up that I thought was interesting is that, um, you know, there, of course, there is a fair number of individuals that not only have general kind of issues with stress and coping, but, but huge um, sort of emotional dysregulation issues. So, uh, you know, by that, um, maybe one of the spouses might say, gosh, I, I can't do anything right. I feel like I'm, I'm walking on eggshells. I can't ever say the right thing. I can't ever do the right thing. I don't know when you're going to blow up. I don't know when you're, you know, and, and so that, um, 
I was actually surprised to find that that was um, out there in sort of the general population that that um, people have a difficult time dealing with significant when one of the spouses has some emotional discontrol or emotional dysregulation issues. So, you know, when you and there you might be talking about people like with anger management problems or something like that. So when you take it from there, then what um, I, I looked at that type of um, literature. And then when I was looking around about like other studies that have been done, I was, you know, um, it, it makes sense to me that there were some studies that used what we call cognitive behavioral um, marital interventions where you try to change your perceptions, right? You try to catch yourself when you're having misperceptions of what your spouse is saying. Um, Or, you know, you try to use some good coping skills such as relaxation strategies and self, you know, trying to, you know, use good self-reassurance. But I was actually surprised um, that there had been some studies, uh, group studies actually, that um, were for individuals that had um, these emotional dysregulation issues. And in particular, let's say um, individuals that have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Oh, okay. Right. So, yeah, um, and kind of at that core, they have a lot of emotional instability and they're very sensitive to criticism sometimes. And so, those particular strategies, like there have been dialectical behavioral groups that were marital groups that were developed for that. And then you look at the um, brain and you know, the population with brain injury who who develop cognitive issues that, you know, of course, not only affect their cognition and, you know, what we think of as attention and short term memory, but it affects the way that they communicate with each other. And it affects their, you know, own sense of um, identity. Their, their, it, it promotes, um, or actually, actually, I should say it in reverse, right? It significantly reduces their sense of security and confidence. And so now they're much more likely to misperceive what's going on in the relationship. They're much more likely to read into situations. And um, and many of those individuals may also um, struggle a lot with that significant emotional dysregulation that almost can mimic individuals that have mania or that have borderline personality. And um, it just seemed to actually... um, it was a really nice fit. Like I I was pleasantly surprised, right? That it wasn't that um, we felt the need to develop something incredibly different, but rather to look at what's been out there and what the themes are in both populations, the general and the population that's had brain injury and look at, um, you know, what has been done and how can that be modified to really fit the needs of, of, um, these individuals in their relationships. And you mentioned the term uh, dialectical behavior therapy. Uh, uh, How do we describe that as opposed to cognitive behavioral therapy? Cognitive behavioral therapy will, in general, focus, they, they have a strong focus on looking at a person's perceptions that they have in a particular situation or towards someone. They'll try to get a person to identify, you know, it, uh, what types of misperceptions they might be having. And then um, 
give them some strategies to uh, maybe modify the way that they think about that situation, the way that they um, look at it more realistically, look at it more reassuringly, try to reframe it. And the behavioral aspect of that will incorporate strategies like um, using timeouts, using relaxation, some deep breathing, um, you know, uh, scheduling, um, scheduling your week with pleasurable events just to sort of enhance your mood. So it incorporates, right, both aspects of that. And, you know, dialectical behavioral therapy, I mean, I, I just think that they all um, have aspects that are really similar with each other. So it's not that we certainly would not look at the person's perceptions in dialectical behavioral therapy, but um, deep, the, the, dialect, um, the dialectical part of that is getting a person to understand that in some of the perceptions that they have, they tend to be very extreme. So, you know, and, and the dialectical aspect is trying to get that person to think more in the middle somewhere, more in the balance of that. And instead of thinking all or nothing, right, you eat, I either love you, I hate you, that I can do both. <laughs> You know, I can do a little of both and still be okay. But then also because people think in such such extremes, that's why their emotions fit that. They go very extreme. So the behavioral part of that, um, which I think fits so nicely with this particular population um, of individuals that have had brain injury, is that um, it's really hard, I think, when you have intense emotions, as in people with brain injury, to have enough insight in that moment to sort of reason through something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in DBT, it's real focused on getting a person to um, make an immediate identification of, okay, right now I'm having a dysfunctional thought or right now I'm th- this isn't good. Okay, I'm going to step away from the situation and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And it's, you know, so it, they're very specific techniques in getting them sort of less charged, less intense, um, calming a person down, getting them to be, to develop more healthy habits um, in addition to that, to sort of keep their sort of baseline functioning more calm and peaceful as opposed to always being on heightened, um, kind of at a heightened state, because the more you're at a heightened state, the more you're gonna react on your spouse. Uh, you invoke the name John Gottman uh, in particular uh, for his large body of marital research that you drew from. What's the what's the main theme of his work that uh, was useful in porting over into this? John um, Gottman and his partner Julie Gottman they they like I said in the paper they are just leaders or one of the leaders in the field of marital research and what they the way I look at their um, their work is um, it's not sometimes it's not so much a real specific intervention, but it's getting you to identify particular um, themes. So it it helps you to look at the framework and it gives you models. So for example, um, um, they're really big into communication, right? And so yes, interpersonal communication skills is a part of DBT and it can be a part of CBT, but, but they are really good at looking at it in the context of the Um, relationship exchange so how one person in that dyad how what is the exchange of of, uh, verbal communication what is the exchange of nonverbal communication and even behaviors 
that they're doing within the relationship. And these exchanges, how they're perceived and how they're given, um, it's, mm-hmm. it's those exchanges that can sometimes be um, really nurturing for a relationship or really damaging for a relationship. So how Gottman comes into this is that, you know, a, a lot of um, the framework we used is educating people on, look, when you talk to your partner in this manner, in this way, then this is really destructive. This is really damaging. What what you may think of as natural is just who I am or everybody does it. There's research that shows that if you respond to your partner in that manner, that it'll probably predict with over 95% accuracy that relationship will end in divorce. And um, so, like, for example, one of the things that Gottman is known for is what they developed the, the, the term, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they, they identified there were four specific themes of negative interaction patterns that people can engage in. And so we teach people, okay, what are these specific four horsemen? How do you identify it in yourself? How do you sort of stop yourself? How do you, how do you change that habit or alter that habit? And then we give them the, what we call the antidotes, right? So like, instead of doing that, right, you can't just tell somebody to stop doing it without giving them something to replace it. So then you teach them other strategies. When you have the urge to do this, instead do this or, you know, respond in this way. So like that, there are many um, skills that oftentimes, again, even in general relationships, we don't, we take for granted and we don't realize that this type of behavior is a negative um, exchange. It, it's called manipulation. It's a very passive aggressive approach. And, and we don't, we don't know that we don't identify it and nor do we communicate that that behavior is bothering us until we finally say I've had it. <laughs> so we're, we're trying to get people to communicate that to identify all the different types of positive and negative exchanges in the relationship that they are having. And particularly for this population, you know, those exchanges may be new, right? And so because they now know about the effects of the injury, well, what's causing that, right? Is this pure laziness or is this an initiation problem? Is this that they're they're purposely withdrawing from you or is it because, you know, they're word finding issues and and how, how do they get around that? How do they how do they get around their memory issues? And so you're you're teaching them to we're we're not only teaching them stress and coping techniques with each other, but also how to relate and and find their find their partner again and accept who their partner is. And uh, you mentioned that four horsemen scale, which of course has uh, quite an amazing uh, name. And uh, I see here it's it's thirty three true false items. Uh, and they're centered around uh, elucidating contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. So they're so they're true false questions that I guess uh, the, the each partner is asking about how they perceive the marriage or interactions, and and is kind of uh, scoring how much of those behaviors exist. Yes. And that's just one of uh, three measures that you uh, utilize to to determine your your outcomes. Here you also use the dyadic adjustment scale. Uh, a self-report measure of marital adjustment and satisfaction, and the quality of marriage uh, index, which is a uh, just a six-item 
inventory on marriage quality through global ratings. Um, now it's a, it's a 16 week uh, intervention. I, I see that there are, there are 10 modules of, of content distributed over the course of that 16 weeks. Is that right? Yes. And it looks looks quite quite thorough all the way from from kind of the, the basics about um, kind of uh, understanding the nature of the the brain injury changes in relationship down to um, uh, emotional intelligence, uh, coping skills. Um, and uh, uh, kind of relationship building exercises and and, and so forth. So, um, but it's it's one session per week. It's one. Yes, that's right. So um, it's one session per week, which means that um, it might take a couple of weeks or several weeks to actually get through one module. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. I see. So, um, like on the communication section, that's module seven, but it takes um, three sessions to get through that. Y'all had uh, uh, good results, except for this uh, quality of uh, marriage index, which uh, which you discussed. Y'all didn't see a significant change there. And um, uh, what are your what are your general thoughts about that? I am still on the fence with that. I mean, you know, you you I kind of have to. It, uh, Certainly, I, I accept that for what it is, and I'm not quite sure because when I was looking at other studies, so so we actually, um, the first study that we published on it was a feasibility study, and in that study, uh, we did find a significant improvement in the, uh, on the, that QMI or quality of marriage index. And so we thought, well, let's use it again and, and see what happens, and then, of course, we don't find significant effects. And when I looked at other studies, you know, that had used that, it was equivocal as well. There there were studies that found that there were significant effects and there were studies that didn't find it. And so I am on the fence about that. And I'll I'll tell you that clinically, um, so we are now starting to run this group. And what I would really like to do is just continue to collect data and see um, is it really capturing what I wanted to capture? Um, or is you know, or and, and truly, is it not changing? You know, mm-hmm. and, and what that would look like. So I haven't discarded it altogether. I'm just um, I'm not feeling confident about that particular measure, though. Sure. Yeah. Um, because I mean, oh, certainly, besides the other two measures, you're also getting really good feedback from the participants about how much they feel like they're getting out of the process, which is really important as well, and kind of the individual aspects of it uh, that they feel like they're, that they're and the skills that they're, that they're building. Yes, uh, and that's that's actually such a valuable aspect of that. I I really um, got a lot out of going through um, set the satisfaction measures and people's comments, what they were reporting, and um, you know I think a couple people have asked me why I chose to do this in a group format, and and when I thought about it that way, you know initially I was kind of on the fence. I. I, well, I did Bix in the group format, and I know there have been other studies that have done group marital interventions. And because we know people that have had um, a brain injury or are suffering, you know, with with any you know significant issue, they oftentimes like to turn to others in similar situations. So I decided to give it a try, and in both. Um, publications, so in the feasibility study as well as this one that you're referring to, that was probably the number one comment that people really, really uh, uh, right? I mean, they can tell you certain sections that they really liked and certain sections that they perceive 
made substantial changes for them, but the largest um, subjectively reported right, benefit has been that they got to go through it with other people, which surprises me because I know how private we can be when it comes to our relationships. Sure. Uh, and I, I think also uh, you talk about uh, your attrition rate um, and how that kind of matches or is similar to what normal couples therapy type interventions see. Yours was 10%. And uh, I think that's uh, uh, probably, you know, must be, must be equivalent to the low single digits for, for a, you know, uh, quote unquote, you know, regular or non-brain injury associated group because virtually every other intervention known to man for anything to do with the brain injury population, you have a higher attrition rate. And here you're getting um, other, other studies are, are saying anywhere from 11 to 60 plus uh, percent attrition rates for various marriage interventions. It's, it's kind of surprising to see the brain injury group on the low end. That's another measure of how much they, they must have been enjoying it or feel like they were getting out of it. Um, yeah, that is a nice finding. Um, I have, I guess I have some maybe speculation on that possibly. So I, I would love to say that, wow, well, they really, really liked the intervention and they really got a lot out of it. And, and I, I would love to feel that way. Um, I also can say that I think in the, this, these attrition rates that we found were similar to what we found in the brain injury coping skills group. And yeah, and I, and I think that one of the things, um, one of the factors is that when, when I ask, you know, so if it's just a sort of quote survivor that's had an injury or if it's just a family member if the group is just for them then I think sometimes it's a lot easier to you know if you need to cancel a session or if you need to uh, you know if you can't make it I, I think you don't feel as connected possibly and I mean I think you know people do feel very connected in groups but I guess what I'm trying to say is that when you have two people that are in the study together, what I uh -huh. have kind of overheard or, or even kind of joke, you know, people joking around being like, well, my spouse is making me come, you know, or sure. yeah, I mean, they, yeah. right. And my, my, uh, my partner's making me come. And even in the BICs, they would say that, right. Like, okay. And, and so, because then you go around that first day and ask why people are here and, you know, a, a good percentage will say, well, I, I basically said I, they want to come. And so I guess I'm here. Yeah. Well, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, that yeah. you know, the spouse is <laughs> utilized in, in the rest of medicine for pretty much every every other health intervention yes. so yes. as well. And maybe there's some some peer pressure as well. I mean, is it the same group of people each session, each, each week, in which case, you know, others might notice if you're not there and have to explain why you weren't there last week and that type of thing? You are absolutely right. That I mean, that really, I think, is the other big piece of that is that the more cohesive you can make your group as a facilitator and the more they can connect with each other that that there is a peer pressure there people will tell each other where were you or i missed you or you know gosh i hope you're okay and people get worried and concerned about each other and they start connecting so and and i think that you know while people don't want to miss any of the information or the activities you know, they, they do rather in this group in particular, they, they kind of actually enjoy the process in some ways that um, they just miss each other. They, that's their one time. And then a lot of people will actually say this is our date night. 
for right now. Uh This is our date night. And um, that is the one time they do get to connect with other people. So I think that's a huge part of that as well. Well, uh, as you uh, certainly appropriately mentioned in the paper, this is a a first, uh, taking a a new intervention specifically focused for uh, couples uh, following brain injury and testing it in a randomized fashion. Uh, Congratulations for doing that work. It's very important work. Um, And uh, it's great that we're that we're you know bringing these types of treatments to this this patient population. It's uh, it's a kind of a relatively common theme, I suppose, with with brain injury that we end up seeing sometimes parallels published in other patient populations and other conditions uh, first before they before they come to ours. Um, it it does require a lot of uh, thought and innovation to kind of to bring that forward. And you crafted something specific here to this to this population. Um, uh, I know that uh, you've already done some work in the in the realm of uh, starting to try to popularize this and uh, train others. Uh, that that's my understanding or that's what you intend to do going forward. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, I certainly would like to continue to run our clinical groups and um, collect data on that so that I do have more information to share and help other clinicians problem solve because it is the first two studies. So um, certainly I hope that we can do more and explore more with this. Um, And like I mentioned in the article, it does come with, you know, limitations. So We've just we have learned a lot from how we ran this and and better understanding that there are certain individuals and certain couples that are it, it's not appropriate for them to be in this group and that sounds mm-hmm. horrible saying that you know because it's developed to help individuals so uh, and so there's so much that um, there's there's so much to continue to be learned I I do hope to one day be able to. Um, you know, teach other clinicians um, about this and, and um, so that others can use it. I also recognize that I, I have a lot to learn and continue to sort of hone and sharpen um, some of the things that we want to do in this mm-hmm. program. Um, and I, I also just want to quickly say that um, I don't get this out right now, that I am, you know, I am so utterly grateful for all of the contributors. Um, I, I, I certainly do not consider this program alone uh, to be my program alone. Everyone on this paper uh, had a tremendous contribution to conceptualizing this and helping to work through all of these kinks. And so I'm very, very grateful. So I, I hope that as a, a group, um, you know, who's on these two papers with me, that we can continue to also be a part of that process and disseminating and, and teaching others and learning from that. So Excellent. Um, on on the concrete level, if somebody is reading this paper, or listening to this interview, and says, "You know what? We need to start doing this in our brain injury program." What do they need to do? Uh, reach out to you via, via email, or there are there materials online? Um, what what's the next step? Yeah, um, that's a great question too. Um, I would say, please feel free to reach out to me via email. Um, I think um, I don't remember if it's on the paper or not, but. 
Um, I can provide it here if you want me to. And um, yes, please reach out to me via email. I'm happy to talk about what they are looking for. I mean, if they're just wanting ideas, if they want references, or um, or if they actually want to learn the intervention itself. And and we are absolutely happy to do that and and teach them. We do have a manual. So just like for the Bix intervention, we had published a manual for this, and in a very similar fashion, we do have a very specific manual that takes you through each session all the modules and what to do and how to do it so okay well excellent well i think everyone who treats uh, brain injury has experience with seeing uh divorce you know after brain injury and couples breaking up and are and aware of the in, incredible detrimental effect that that certainly has on uh the individual who is uh, uh trying to recover after that and, um, you know, so interventions to, to prevent that outcome are, are desperately needed. Uh, I suppose that's the next stage as well for, for your intervention to continue to track folks to see if, if uh, that outcome is ultimately avoided years down the line. Yes, correct. Yes, so that's what we're hoping is to avoid avoid that outcome or, or at least help people, um, you know, in a, um, a healthy way if, if that is inevitable. So... Sure. Yeah. yeah. Can't always be avoided. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Backhouse, I really appreciate your time today and helping us uh, elucidate your, your paper. And um, uh, hopefully uh, this, this interview is a useful entree to everybody. And, and the paper is, is quite readable and well-written. And I encourage folks to turn to the pages of, of the archives and, uh, and dig in. Uh, again, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. And that'll do it for this February 2019 Rehab Cast. Please join us again next month. And a reminder that ACRM 2019 is in Chicago this year. That's coming right up, and it's time now to make plans for November. Join us in Chicago this fall for ACRM 2019, the largest interdisciplinary rehabilitation conference in the world. The main core conference and pre-conference instructional courses deliver six jam-packed days of evidence-based educational content for the whole rehab team, as well as patients and their caregivers. Please visit acrm.org for more information and follow hashtag ACRM2019.